Well, again, welcome to Redeeming Grace. You know, I love our church. God's doing some great things in and through our church family together as we seek to make and equip growing disciples of Jesus. But I love that our church is one of many local churches striving to be faithful. I'm grateful that we get to partner with other churches who are seeking to make much of Christ in their own communities. Today, we're gonna to take a break from our Mark series, and I wanna introduce you to Steve, our guest preacher, Steve Reed. Steve, Steve is the lead pastor of Doxology Church in Arlington. And Doxology Church is one of our partner churches, plant ch chart, partner church plants, uh, and God's doing some great things in and through the people of Doxology Church. I'm grateful he's here today not only to encourage us, I love listening to Steve preach, he's one of the smartest people that I know, um, and really loves the Lord. So I'm encouraged for you guys uh, to listen to him preach, but also just so you can get to know him a little bit more and hear a little bit more about uh, their church. So before we dive into the sermon, just gonna ask Steve a couple of questions. Uh, and we're gonna have a reception after our service, our gathering today, uh, where he'll be there to talk a little bit more about uh, the ministry that's going on at Doxology. So I invite you to come out to that. But Steve, tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, so I'm married to a awesome woman named Kelsey. And for a lot of big portion of our marriage, we didn't have children, but recently we've had children. We're very thankful. So two young boys, and uh, we just found out we are due for a little girl coming up. And so, um, yeah, excited as I am terrified. And so any of you who have daughters or maybe you are a daughter, please come give me counsel uh, after the service. Maybe if you guys are still doing the daddy-daughter date later, I'd love to bring her. But yeah, very grateful for my family. So really, there's nothing much going on in your life with no. two little kids yeah, and yeah, lots of sleep and rest all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so uh, you, got, you planted Doxology Church, so fun story. So Steve was at Portico Church in Arlington, and I was at Portico Church in Arlington. That's where Sojourn was sent out from, which I pastored for uh, nine or so years before we joined together to be one new church. So Steve and the group of people from there were also sent out from the same church that Sojourn was sent out from as well. So when did you plant it, uh, and how's that been going for you guys? We planted in October of 2019. So right before that, which shall not be named, happened in 2020. And, but I mean, it, it has been really good. Um, you know, when, it, when that first happened, I thought, Lord, you are checked out at the steering wheel. But uh, by his grace, our church actually grew a lot tighter through that season. And so things have been really, really good in our church family. That's you know, awesome. So three and a half years ago or so. Okay. Yep. And what's, uh, what's one thing you guys are celebrating right now in, in Doxology Church? Yeah, I, that's hard to answer, which makes me happy uh, to think about that. I, I'd say the thing I'm most excited about is one, we're, we're still around and we're very healthy, but two, it's the things that aren't as obvious on a Sunday. So just a lot of really quiet behind the scenes things that are happening with uh, people, members thinking they're gonna abandon the faith or Jesus calling them into something really hard, you know, usually in the realm of relationships or health and them choosing to follow Jesus. And then uh, some unbelievers in our church family right now who they've actually like, even just the other day, one of them approached me and said, I want the church to walk alongside me as I try to figure this thing out, actually inviting us in. So really, really excited for things like that. That's awesome. Praise God. Well, like I said, Steve has a lot more awesome things to share about Doxology Church. So come out to the reception uh, after our gathering today. But let me pray for you and then we'll dive into the sermon. Father, we give you thanks just for this opportunity to gather together this morning. God, I'm grateful for this brother, his love for you, his love for the church, his love for his family. 
God, I pray that as he preaches your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, help us to see and savor Christ today as we think about our own lives and this own, our own community, but also what you're doing in the wider church and in this area in calling people to yourself. So God, bless him as he preaches and bless us as we sit under the preaching of your word today. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Teresa is now gonna come and read our sermon text out of John chapter four. So listen to the word of the Lord. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, not, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Thanks, Teresa. Redeeming Grace, it's really good to be with you guys. Um, the... So I was walking in here this morning, I was reminded that the longevity rate for pastors and their health isn't great. And what researchers will tell you is that like a key factor in helping a pastor in a church endure in ministry uh, are partnerships. And so I'm just, I really am so thankful for you guys for not just the giving that you all give so that our church can uh, be healthy financially, but also for many of your pastors have met with me one-on-one -on -one to help me with things. So just very thankful for you guys and grateful to be here. So when I did ask your pastors what they wanted me to preach on this morning, uh, they told me evangelism. And for the past few years, like something I have realized as, as a pastor is, you know, if you want to make Christians feel guilty, bring up tithing, prayer, or evangelism. So I was like, you had to choose one of the three. <laughs> like, what did I do to deserve this punishment? Um, no, I'm just kidding. They, it's not because they want you to feel guilty or anything like that. Just they, they want to learn about this alongside with you guys. And so speaking for myself, and this isn't rhetoric, this is really how I've experienced evangelism as a Christian. And by and large, it's been a frustrating endeavor for me because for as long as I can remember, I've had a burning desire for people that I love to know Jesus, but there often seems to be this gap between what I hope will happen in a conversation and then what actually happens in a conversation, if, if you feel me. And when I would hear a, say, a great evangelist come to a conference and give a talk about, you know, here's how to share your faith, and they give these examples of them being super quick-witted and articulate in the moment, and as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, like, that's an amazing story, but I'm, I'm not that quick-witted, and... I'm not that articulate, so what does this mean for me? 
or you hear a story about a person who they're about to board a plane. It's always a plane, right? And before they get on the plane, they pray for God to open a door for an evangelistic opportunity, which is, which is great. And but sure enough, they sit next to someone and the person's converted, right? By the time they, they land. And I'm thinking like, before I get on a plane, just as an introvert, I'm praying that the seat next to me is gonna be empty so that I, I don't have to like deal with the person next to me. So, like, what does this whole thing mean for me? And what I love about this story in John 4 is this is a woman who's had no gospel training. She, she wouldn't be the person who would be invited to a big conference to give a talk on evangelism or apologetics. But because she had an encounter with grace or because she had an encounter with Jesus, it's not only that her life was transformed, but it leads to the transformation of an entire village. And so we're just gonna look at this story and what we can learn from this. And so the main idea we're gonna set in today is experiencing grace makes you invite others into grace. Experiencing grace makes you invite others into grace. And we'll follow the flow of this story. So first, we'll just look at part one, experiencing grace, what this woman receives from Jesus. And then number two, inviting others into grace. How does this lead her to uh, share the good news about Jesus with other people? So first, number one, experiencing grace. And here I'm gonna summarize, because it's a long story. We only had the second half read, so I'll summarize part one for you, which you can find in verse one through 26. And Jesus and his disciples, they go to a foreign town, Samaria, and Jesus by himself goes to a well there in the village. So he's alone, and a woman comes who's also alone. So they're just the two of them together. And what we know from the dialogue between her and Jesus is she has been married five times, and the current man she's living with isn't her husband. And so we traditionally how this is understood, and there's decent evidence for it, is that maybe this is her place in life because she's promiscuous. But also it could be because she's been in a series of relationships where men have abused her. And in this culture in particular, she's the one who loses out. Or it could be she's been in five legitimate marriages and in an age where the mortality rate was high, her husband's passed away and she kept marrying and then now maybe she's living with a relative. But the point is, whatever of these three scenarios are, are taking place, what we do know is that her life is punctured by grief, disappointment, and pain. And she approaches the well at noon, which is significant because this is the heat of the day. Most people will go to the well in the cool of the day in the early morning, and so she probably goes when she's not gonna have to deal with other people shaming her or excluding her from her circles. And note that her name in this story is just the woman. Whereas right before this, Jesus has an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. So getting at the, this idea that Nicodemus was someone of significance, so that's why he's named. But she's just called the woman, getting at this idea of, you can get a sense of how other people viewed her, probably how she viewed herself. Nothing, nothing with a body. And I was struck by this position she's in because not too long ago, this was I think a year ago, I went to a wedding and my family didn't go with me and the only people I knew there were the bride and groom. And during the cocktail hour, I'm walking around. I know no one and you know everyone's in their circle of friends. And so I'm just walking alone, hoping that somebody will come talk to me. I'm a real social wizard, let me tell you. <laughs> why are you guys laughing at me? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm messing with you. So, but what hit me is I just, I keep standing there with my drink. No one came and it hit me, you know, 
it's far worse to feel invisible or ignored than for somebody to be angry with you, right? Because when someone's angry with you, at least they acknowledge you exist. But when you're invisible, it's, it's dehumanizing. And this is the position, like try to feel this with me. This is what she's feeling. And Jesus sits with her and he acknowledges something she can do for him. He asks her for a drink and he shows her empathy. And the reason you know he shows her empathy is because she keeps talking. If you wanna know if someone is, who's in pain doesn't feel like you're giving them empathy, it's because they stop talking. They, they don't feel like you're actually listening to them. So he shows her empathy and then essentially what he tells her is, he uses this language of living water with her and the idea is you, you've been searching for something in your life that will just make you finally feel like everything is okay. And probably the main thing you've been looking for that in is men in relationships, but it can only be found in me. And yes, I, I know your history and I know that other women in the town probably view you as a threat. Other men probably view you as damaged goods, but you neglected and overlooked. Your smallness is big to me. And I, the creator of the world, am head over heels in love with you. To be loved like that by someone as great as that, what does that do to a person? And we see what it does to a person. Now here's where we get into our passage. So notice this tiny little detail in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar, this is right after Jesus offered this love to her. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ or the long awaited Messiah? And that detail, she left her water jar. This is significant because this water jar is what she would have had with her anytime she went to the well. So when she would have it with her when she would meet men, she'd have it with her when she was reminded of how alone she was. And so when she leaves her water jar to run into town, essentially what we're being told is all that loneliness, all that shame, those powers over her were broken. They fell to tatters about her feet as she ran into town. Why? Because suddenly what was most true about her had changed. Okay, before she met Jesus, what was most true about her was her longing, her pain, her grief. But now what's most true of her is that a person, the love who made the world, in fact, sees all of her and holds her in the highest esteem, loving her to the stars. And so for you, I'd like us to sit on this question of what do you think is most true about you? You ever think about that? What's most true about you? I am a hard worker. I am intelligent. I am a mother. I'm a bad mother. I am attractive. I'm undesirable. I'm loved. I'm not loved. I'm gay. I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter. I'm frustrated. I'm lonely. I'm numb. 
And it's not that one of these things may not be true. This is what I love about the gospel is God doesn't come and tell us these things about you, both the positive and the negative. It's not even that they're all lies. Okay, so maybe it's, I did fail. I do hide this about me. I am a victim. I was abused. The problem isn't these aren't true. It's the fact that we take things that are merely true and we make them what is most true about us. And what Jesus wants to do with you, what he wants to do with me, is he wants to take any of those understandings you have about yourself that are merely true and demote them to a distant second and make what is most true about you is the fact that you have all of the Father's love and already receive all of his pleasure before you do anything, regardless of how you lived yesterday or how you're living today. And you can see the power of this because if you could please pull up that first slide here. So this is what you could call a, an empty personal circle or an empty identity. And this was the woman's position before she met Jesus. So when you have an empty identity, what this means is you're still seeking for who you are. You don't yet have a stable sense of self. And so often you need validation from others or you need validation from your career. Relationally, it's hard to be healthy because you may have the sense of if I take off the mask and so show someone who I, who I really am, they're gonna, they're gonna back away from me. Or maybe there's a tendency toward codependency. You, you need someone's presence. You need someone's affirmation. But what happens in the gospel is that second cir- circle happens, right? Where he fills you with a deep sense of what is most true about you. And when this happens, and it's only Jesus who gives this, by the way. Okay, any identity found in the world or any other system of religion or philosophy will always leave you on the left because either it's hollow, okay, or it's not eternal. Okay, so only Jesus gives you this full identity on, over there on the right. And what happens is because each human being has such a deep need to be known, to be loved, to be in a relationship with someone where there are no secrets and no condemnation, that when you get this, what Jesus gave to this woman, Okay, not just abstractly believing, yes, Jesus died for me, but a real sense of daily being with God and experiencing his pleasure, then you're free. Okay, because now there's, there's an antidote to your shame. There's an unflappability you can have to handle what's coming. You're relationally healthy, or you can say yes and no to the right things and for the right reasons. And this is why Jesus was so relationally healthy, by the way. Why he could enter into relationships where either someone would spurn him or he'd pour his love and mercy into someone for three years and then they'd drop him like a hot potato. He could still be there with people, right, without becoming utterly shattered when people betrayed him because he already knew what was most true about him was he had the Father's love. And this is what this woman gets. This is what we saw in the baptism today, right? What's true of Jesus, he knew he had the Father's love. That's how he was able to do everything he did in in the ministry. And in baptism, right, you're told, you're my beloved daughter, my beloved child, and you, I'm well pleased. This woman got this and she knew she didn't deserve it. Okay, that's why it's called grace. And it's not a cheap grace. It's not like Jesus just saying, oh, it's fine, whatever you've been doing, right? I, just, I, I affirm you regardless. No, the, the reason Jesus can offer her this grace and offer you this grace is because what this woman didn't know is after, after this encounter, He'd make his way to the cross. I mean, what happened with Jesus at the cross? 
at the cross, the experience Jesus had was not what's most true about you is you're loved, you're welcomed. You're at the heart of things. His experience was you're nothing, nothing with a body. You're ashamed, you're alone. Why? Because he was trading places with us. He was taking God's righteous judgment for sin, for this woman said, for your and my sin, for all the ways that we don't love others as ourselves, for the ways we do ignore God and don't love him. And then in his rising again from the dead, he, give, he offers you life full and free so that when you trust in Jesus, you can actually be a child of the most high. That's the experience of grace that this woman gets and what you, what you and me get. And this is why we're spending the first half of our time together right here on this because, I mean, I hope you're already seeing the massive implications this has for your work, for how you're present with your family, for how you care for people who are really hard to love. Maybe those last two categories are the same. (laughs) But we're talking about evangelism today and any time we talk about evangelism, okay, before we think about how do I go meet other people, the first person Jesus wants to meet is you. So he gives us grace, and now out of this, we get to invite other people into grace. And so let's look at a few principles that happen just instinctively for this woman as she goes to her town and tells people about Jesus. The first thing we see, what does it mean to invite others into grace, is relationship. Relationship. So a big part of the reason why everyone ran from the town to come see Jesus is because the woman was a, she was a known entity in the town. And so when people saw the change in her, they knew, okay, whatever happened to you, I don't know if I buy it yet, but I at least want to come check out whatever or whoever it was that's responsible for this change in you. And yes, her relationship was fraught as an understatement with the people in her town, but the principle is still there because she was known in the town, it made all the difference in the world when she invited them to come see Jesus. And so a question for you is, just ask yourself, and I've, especially since becoming a pastor and left what, would, what many of you would call a real job, right, where I was around unbelievers all the time, is are you in actual relationship with those who don't know Jesus? Like as you calendar out your week, and the free time where you're not at work, right, or not at home or not here, all three very important places, are you making a point to be in the lives of those who don't know Jesus? Do they sit at your dinner table? Do you go to their child's award ceremonies? Do you ask real questions, just things like, what is it that makes you tick? You know, why, why do you do what you do? Or oh, that was a really hard thing you went through. Can you tell me a little bit about how did you, how did you get through that? Right, so then when you're in relationship with them, it becomes way less transactional, if you know what I mean, when you bring up Jesus, maybe even a little less colonialist, like where you just, just want someone else to believe what you believe, right, and be like you to make your life easier. And most importantly, like Jesus, you, you actually know the person so you can personalize the gospel message to them. So number one, relationship. Number two, uh, non-defensive. And I realize I'm 
mixing up my word forms, like adjectives, nouns, grammarians, please just show me some grace. But all right, so non-defensive when we think about inviting others into grace. And so notice what goes on here. When the woman runs into town, she, there's, a, there's almost a buoyancy about her, okay, a lightness of step when she just runs in and says, come, come see this guy. You know, is he the Christ? She's not prickly, you know, and yet, granted, we're only given a small window, but from what we can tell, she's not getting super defensive or argumentative. And I think in our, both our cultural moment and where we live here in the DMV area, where we're in a very polarized climate, and this area, which tends to be very intellectual, very success-driven, often what happens is, at least for myself, when we get in a conversation about the gospel, and someone isn't responding in a way that we hoped, right? So maybe they just, they couldn't, they couldn't care any less. Or they, they get angry, right? They're, this is a very touchy subject for them. Or, or maybe they have some just really good reasons for why they don't follow Jesus. And so suddenly, like, you start to feel attacked, right? And so you start to get defensive. It's like, oh my gosh, now it's like, it's the bottom of the ninth and everything hinges on if I get this conversation right or not. But there is a, there's a freedom that comes when we see this as what it is. It's an invitation. And yes, Jesus calls us in First Peter right, to be able to give a reason for what we believe. But notice he never says get defensive about what you believe. So when we tell others about Jesus, it's less of a, okay, I have this two by two area of turf that I need to defend with all my might. And it's more like I'm in this vast green hilly expanse called the kingdom of God, right? It's ultimate reality. There's a God who's really awesome here. His name's Jesus. And you're welcome to come in. The door's wide open. You, you feel the difference there. Okay, and then you can let the spirit of God do what he will. Now it's no longer your sense of validation or sense of worth that's on the line when it, when it comes to these conversations. So that's number two. Uh, it really helps, even just in the moment, just often I'll find myself just like praying in real time, Lord, help me to just remember this is not about me like winning this argument. I'm inviting them into your amazing kingdom. And they may say no, they may say yes. I pray they say yes. Okay, number three, a person. Okay, so relationship, non-defensive. And then number three, a person. So what does she not do? She doesn't run into town and start debating politics. She doesn't run into town and debate evolution or tell, her, tell them about this amazing new self-help tool she found, right? And just for the record, I think therapy and things like that can be really helpful. But notice that's not what she does here. What she does is she runs into town and she points them to a person. She points them to Jesus. And this is the, the most important factor as we think about sharing our faith, because the gospel, it's not, here's some great teachings, and if you live up to snuff, as you, you heard shared at the baptism, or if you live up to snuff, maybe you'll pass that ultimate bar exam when you die, and God will let you in. Okay, but it, it's Jesus, God himself, come to do what we could not do, and then therefore, through his life, death and resurrection, bring us into life-giving relationship with God. So Jesus is at the, at the heart of the gospel, which is why we need to make it a priority in our own lives and with other people to keep, like we don't have all the answers for people's aches, sorrows, objections, but there's someone who does. 
And so we need to point them to Jesus. And so practically, what are some examples of what this may look like? It may look like you're talking with someone about how Jesus is helping you not find your sense of self-worth in your career or your parenting, but through his unrelenting love for you. It might look like sharing a, a really difficult season you're in, and you're just honestly sharing. Here's how, you know, would you mind if I told you a little bit about how Jesus helps me with this? I know there's uh, two dear friends of mine and Kelsey right now. They are in the, the fallout of an affair that happened. And by God's incredible mercy, their marriage is, is being restored. And it's, it's an incredible story. And one of them told me the other day, they said, you know, I was talking with a friend who doesn't know Jesus and we were sharing our story. And they asked, you know, how in the world are you guys still together and in many ways closer than you were before? They said, we just told him like, this isn't because of anything in ourselves, but this may sound weird to you, but because of how Jesus first met us and our brokenness and our anger and defensive walls and forgave us and brings us into his family now empowers us. Like we're, we're able to, yeah, we're not doing it great, but it's because of Jesus that we're able to do this. And this, this specific person historically has been relatively hostile to Christianity and they said it was almost the first time in their life they saw them, they were like, that's, I don't really fully get what you're saying, but I want to know more. It's the power of the name. Or it may look like, maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I trip over my words anytime I try to bring up Jesus, right? Suddenly it's like I forget how to speak. And so it, it can happen in a very non-suave manner, if you want to call it this. The first time I saw this was with my older brother, his name's Mike, and he was ahead of me in high school. He was, he was the popular kid. I was the not as popular kid. And he, he goes to a party, and he goes to a party, you know, like all the, the who's who are there. Goes, you know, parents are out of town, big home. He goes in there, and I mean, just every act of ill repute is happening. Okay, so drugs, X-rated X activity out in the open, you know, all the above. And so he's standing there, and he's thinking, I, I don't think I should be here. But he knows if he leaves, I mean, few things worse as a high schooler, right, than like being too cowardly to stay somewhere. So he's saying like, how do I get out of here? So he manages to get down to the basement and slip out the basement door without anybody seeing. He's like, oh, thank goodness. And so he starts going up the grassy hill and he hears this, hey, Mike. And he goes, oh shoot, like somebody saw me. And it was his friend, Jason, and he's like, what do I say? Okay, oh yeah, I'm just going to the grocery store, Jason. And he's like, it's 10 p.m. on a Friday, you're not going to the grocery store. And Jason goes, where are you going, Mike? And Mike is normally a pretty socially adept guy, but his mind goes blank. And all that comes out is, I just gotta go be with Jesus. <laughs> Like, what? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? For, especially for someone, right, who has no church background or anything like that. And he just runs up the hill. Like, was this great evangelism? <laughs> it's like, gosh, I just pushed this guy further away from the gospel. Three years later, he's in college and he gets a letter those of you remember what letters are, those paper things. You... 
he gets a letter from this guy, Jason, and he writes Mike and he says, Mike, every single night since that night you left Nate's party, I haven't been able to stop thinking about what you said. And what bothered me was your answer to why you were leaving was Jesus. Like, everything that was at that party was everything I've wanted. And you, like, you could have had it all. Okay, girl would have kissed you. You could have, you know, done anything you wanted to do. And you believed that you had something better or someone better to go be with. And your answer was Jesus. Can you tell me more about that? He says, yes, I can. I think it's to tell him the good news of the gospel. Okay, right, 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 Romans 1, right? It's the, the, the gospel. It's the gospel that's the power of God, right? And it's Jesus who's at the heart of the gospel unto salvation. So we need to keep it centered on the person of Jesus. Number four, okay, long-term view. Long-term view, where do we see this? So as, no, she brings everyone to Christ and then it's through the person and word of Christ they begin to believe. And Jesus says in John uh, 4, 37, he's talking to his disciples and he says, here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So the idea here is you can have a farmer who sows seed and they walk away and months later, you know, up comes the crop and someone else comes along and they can pick it. Even though they aren't the ones who sowed the seed, they may not even be the one who watered the seed, but they, they grab the fruit, right? They get the harvest and you see the image that Jesus is painting here. So you can share the good news with someone and then you don't see that person come to faith or you get to lead someone to Christ and it's because somebody else before you Okay, help to pave the way. And so here are two lessons that have been, you know, in addition to keeping it centered on the person of Jesus, what's been most helpful for me. First, this, this, anytime you get to have the privilege of seeing somebody come to faith, this should give you a profound humility. Okay, when you lead someone to faith, it's not like, that's right, you know, MVP right here. It's, wow, the only reason this happened is because someone else sowed the seed before, you know, not least of which is God, who, the only one who can raise a dead person to life. But second, and likely in a, with the power of God, someone else who told them the good news, right? So by the time you were there with them, a lot of work had already been done in that person's house. So it should give you incredible humility, but also it should give you encouragement if you're the sower. And so you know, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I, I just haven't seen someone come to faith in a really long time through my efforts or in our cultural moment. Am I even, am, do I hope to see anyone else come to faith? Or maybe you've never led someone to saving faith with you. And you're just thinking like, am I not cut out for this? Am I a, am I a bad disciple? And the lesson here is God may be giving you the privilege of being a sower. And the most impactful way I can think about what a privilege this is, is, so when I was an undergrad, my senior year, I met my now wife, Kelsey. And she wasn't a Christian when I met her. And so 
we were friends. We were in the same, we were in the same undergrad degree. And, you know, we, we started hanging out, and we weren't dating or, or anything like that. And was, there was a, an evening where I was with her, and an opportunity came to tell her the gospel. And, <laughs> like, my gospel presentation was D minus. Okay, it was, if you're, like, I would not want you to see it on a screen up there. And after I finished saying some things, was just like, oh my goodness, you know, she's never going to want to be friends with me again. And her response in the moment was, okay, I, a lot of what you said, I don't, that sounds kind of weird, but I don't have a church background and I'm, I'm actually open to what you just shared. And so she got connected with one of her best friends and she came to faith and entered into discipleship. And then a little while after that, we started dating and, and got married and it took me a little while to finally ask her, but there was a time where I finally just asked her, I said, hey, Kelsey, why in the world did you respond so favorably to that evening, right, when I shared the gospel with you? And she said, oh, yeah. Well, it was due to a number of reasons, but the, I think the most important reason or the most influential reason was uh, earlier in college, I had a friend named Lauren McCain. And... Lauren befriended me, and Lauren was one of the most just generous, genuine people I've ever met. And I knew there was something different about her, and one day, she, Lauren loved me enough to tell me about Jesus. And at the time, I was like, all right, you know, that's cool, that, that's fine, but you know, thanks, but no thanks. And she went on her way, and she said, you know, it was because of Lauren that she's the one who opened my eyes to like what or who a Christian could be and what this whole Jesus thing is really about. So by the time you told me about it, it just, it reminded me I was in a place to receive it. And for those of you who don't know the name Lauren McCain, she deserves to be remembered because shortly after Lauren shared the gospel with my wife, Kelsey, she was one of the wouldn't happen. She was one of, the school we went to was Virginia Tech, and she was one of the 32 victims of the, of the mass shooting that happened on the campus. And Kelsey's like, I would give anything if I could just tell Lauren, thank you for loving me enough to tell me about Jesus. And See, Lauren McCain is a girl who experienced grace. She knew that was, what was most true about her was that she was held in high esteem by God. And then she formed a relationship with a girl named Kelsey. And in a non-defensive way, she pointed her not to a trick or a philosophy, but she pointed her to a person and I'm wondering if on that final day she was here, if she was thinking like, man, when I sowed that seed to Kelsey, it was just like bouncing off the concrete. And maybe, maybe if I was better with words, maybe if I was a better friend, she would have come to faith. But I tell you, like, I already know one of the first things I'm doing when Jesus ushers in the new earth and wipes every tear away is I am running to find Lauren and telling her, thank you. And on that day, the sower and reaper 
we'll rejoice together. What can God do with you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the grace that you first give us, most supremely displayed through your son. Lord, I pray for me and for everybody here that uh, you will help us to believe whether we already know Jesus or whether we don't and we're exploring the faith, um, that you give us the most incredible offer to come into your kingdom and what is most true about us, that we're so dearly loved by you. I pray that you'll help us uh, in all the ways that you've wired us, whether we are great with people or not, um, to invite other people to the person of your son and that whether it happens a month from now or 50 years from now, that the sower and reaper will get to rejoice when you make all things new. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.